0: All right, turn in your Bible to the book of Leviticus. It's been a while. We are returning to the book of Leviticus, and apparently I headed off a comment by doing that. Uh, As Sean saw this morning that we were heading back to the book of Leviticus, he said, oh, that means I missed my opportunity to to say, don't worry about it, Jason. A lot of pastors can't make it all the way through Leviticus So it's been almost a year, but we are returning to the book of Leviticus. This is what was interrupted by uh, coronavirus, and so we moved online for a few weeks, and then when we came back, we decided we were going to be doing something a little bit different, kind of appropriate to the particular situation. But now that we are kind of back and meeting regularly like this, and we've finished that series in the letters of John, it's time for us to return to Leviticus. And so we're going to do that this morning, and I don't expect you to remember... All that we said. It's okay. I'm going to give you a recap this morning. So the first half of the message is going to be a recap of what we covered so far. The second half of the message is going to be the new chapter that we're looking at today. So I'm going to move quickly and um, hopefully you can kind of just track with me and keep up. And the first half is just going to be review, kind of refreshing our memory on these things. Today's new passage will be Leviticus 10. So we're going to review The things that we said as an introduction, and then chapters 1 through 9. The book of Leviticus is about how to enter God's presence, or how to live in the presence of God. It's a picture of who God is, and what he expects of us, and in a culture that no longer sees the importance of who God is and what he expects of us, learning from the book of Leviticus of what it takes to come into his presence is important for us to know and to see. Now, the book of Leviticus takes place as God is speaking from the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and his intention is that his people should live in his presence and enjoy his blessings. And so, the book is essentially giving instructions on how to enter God's presence, This is kind of the overview, the outline of Leviticus that we gave before. So chapters 1 through 7 was sanctuary laws. Chapters 8 through 10 is laws about the priests. So we'll be at the tail end of that this morning. Chapters 11 through 15 are personal laws. And then chapter 16 is the centerpiece of the book. It's the Day of Atonement. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And then working back from there, As the book finishes out, we see the same themes, but different content personal laws, priestly laws, and sanctuary laws again as the book finishes out. But the important thing for you to realize there is the centerpiece of the book, chapter 16, is the Day of Atonement. Now, when we broaden out from the book of Leviticus and we set that book in its context, it is in the middle of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it has a role to play in that whole section of the Bible. I'm going to show you a very busy slide here for a minute. You don't need to get all the details. I'm just going to kind of summarize. I want you to be able to visualize. This is kind of like, for those of you that remember, way back in the past, what it was like to go to a shopping mall, And you were, especially if it was a big one and you're trying to find your way around, what did you do? You went to that thing in the middle that was a big map of the mall and it had a star on it that said, you are here, right? And you got your bearings and then you could figure out where to go. That's kind of what this slide is, all right? So the Pentateuch, we have the five books, and I'm not going to go into all the themes that are there, other than to just say, the themes that are in Genesis get echoed in Deuteronomy. The themes that are in Exodus get echoed in Numbers. And then Leviticus has its own themes, the themes of sacrifices and cleanliness and holiness. It is the centerpiece of the Pentateuch. Now, where does it fit? The mountain there is Mount Sinai. Not really, it's just a picture, but it represents Mount Sinai. As Israel comes out of Egypt, at Exodus 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai. At Numbers 10, they leave Mount Sinai. So everything between Exodus 19 and Numbers 10 takes place at Mount Sinai. That means the whole book of Leviticus takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai in a very short, compressed time period. Okay, So that's just kind of helping you get your bearings there. So the book of Exodus talks about setting up the tabernacle the book of Leviticus, the Lord speaks from the tabernacle and then in Numbers, they're packing up the tabernacle and getting ready to move on. In the center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement is really the center of the entire Pentateuch. In a sense, it's the answer to the question that is raised in Genesis 3 of how we can ever come back into God's presence. Okay, so that's the setting. Now, we took some time to say, well, how does Genesis set us up for Leviticus? And I'm not going to go into detail, but coming out of Eden, the question is, who may ascend into God's presence? Eden is on a mountain. Sin enters the picture. Adam and Eve are separated from God's presence, no longer able to fellowship with him. The cherubim are guarding the entrance to Eden, and the question is, how can we ever come back into God's presence? In Genesis, the movement is always a movement eastward. So there's an entrance to the Garden of Eden that's on the east, and when they leave, they go out, and Cain, who kills his brother moves to the east and sets up a city. After the flood, uh, the people move east from the ark. When Lot and Abram travel together and it's time for them to separate and Abram sets up an altar to meet with God, Lot moves east from that place. And every time they move east, it's toward destruction. It's also a movement in Genesis from life to death. Genesis begins with the creation as God creates life and it ends with Joseph's death in Egypt. And even inside, the movement is from Eden to the flood and then from the new life after the flood to the Tower of Babel. And then from the disbursement at the Tower of Babel, God chooses Abram and then Abram's descendants end up in Egypt and Egypt is the land of death. And like I said, the book ends with the death of Joseph. But then the book of Exodus does something different. It reverses the trend. So in Exodus, we have movement from death to life. So for instance, Israel leaves Egypt and goes to the mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet with God. They're coming out of this land of death and to God's presence. And even inside of Egypt, the picture there is a picture of movement out of death If you can picture um, the way the story is told in chapters 1 and 2, you have the command of Pharaoh to kill the baby boys in the Nile River. So the river, the water, is a place of death. And then as they're leaving uh, in chapter, uh, I want to say 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there, as they move out, they come to the Red Sea and they get trapped at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is coming and it's death either way. Either the army's going to kill them or they're going to go into the sea and they're going to die there. And the sea in scripture is often used as a place of chaos and death. But what does God do? Well, you have this account. Their whole time in Egypt is bracketed by waters of death, the Nile River and the Red Sea. But God makes a way through that. And he splits the waters of the Red Sea and Israel goes down into dry land on the bottom of the Red Sea and back up out the other side as if they're going through death and into life. And Pharaoh's army tries to do the same thing, but they're not God's people. And so what's their end? The waters come crashing down on them and it is a place of death for Pharaoh and his army. But now Israel has moved from death to life. Exodus is also where we get the introduction of the mediator. Moses is the one who intercedes for the people to Pharaoh, but then he also intercedes for the people to God. He goes up on the mountain to meet with God, and he gets the Ten Commandments, and he brings them down, and what happens? Before he can even get down the mountain, they've broken the Ten Commandments, and so God says, that's it, you guys go on ahead. I'm going to keep my promise and give you a land, but I'm not going with you. My presence will not go with you. And Moses says, Lord, if your presence isn't going to go with us, then there's no point in us going. You must go with us. And he intercedes for the people. And the result of that is that there's a a renewal of the covenant so that God and his people can be in relationship again. We're also introduced to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is like a little miniature Mount Sinai that the people are going to take with them so that the experience of God on Mount Sinai can stay with them. The presence of God on Mount Sinai can now be God's presence with them as they go. So, for instance, God speaks from Mount Sinai. Well, in Leviticus, he speaks from the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. At Mount Sinai, up on top, there was cloud. It was God's glory that was shielded. Well, in the tabernacle, when you offered incense on the incense altar, it resulted in a glory cloud inside the tabernacle. And outside, as you went to Mount Sinai and you looked up, you would see fire on the mountain that was God's presence Well, as you walked into the tabernacle, there's a big giant altar that is so tall, the priest would have had to look up to it with a perpetually burning fire, and there's God's fire-consuming sacrifices on this altar, and it's like a little miniature Mount Sinai that they would see as they came to serve God. And so, Mount Sinai, God's presence, is taken with them in the form of the tabernacle, but As you come to the end of the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus closes with a problem. At the very end of the book of Exodus, we are told that Moses was not able to enter. And so as Exodus comes to a close, we have all of these good signs. We've moved from death to life and we have the tabernacle now. We have the mediator, but we're still unable to enter God's presence And so now Leviticus is going to answer the question for us, what does it take to come into God's presence? Well, as we got into Leviticus itself, here's what we saw. In chapter one, the burnt offering, and we saw that some of the responsibilities that are laid out there belong to the priests and some belong to the person who's bringing the sacrifice. If it has to do with with doing something with the blood and it has to do with something with the altar, that's a responsibility of the priest. If the instructions are given in the singular, that usually has to do with the worshiper. If it's plural, that's what the priests are supposed to do. The burnt offering, the worshiper would rest his hand on the head of the animal to show that this animal represented him. And then the animal was slaughtered because the worshiper who's coming deserved to die. The blood's applied to the altar. The blood represents the life. And the sacrifice was burned and it's a pleasing aroma to God. And we learn from the burnt offering that the Lord has to speak to reveal the proper way of approaching him. We also saw that we need atonement and God provides the means. And the offering also pictures total dedication and self-surrender to God. In Leviticus 2, the tribute offering talked about honoring God. So we honor God by dedication and submission and obedience and respect and gratitude and the conclusion there was that our whole lives are to be a tribute offering that honors the Lord. Leviticus 3 was the peace offering. It's a food offering, it's a meal, it's a covenant symbol. It's reaffirming the covenant, it signifies peace with God. It points forward to what Jesus would do and what we read, for instance, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Leviticus 4 was the purification offering, and so the purification offering made atonement for unintentional sins, which told us that unintentional sins are serious and they require atonement. God God's word reveals to us the sin that is already present in us and that points to how Jesus cleanses us from sin. Leviticus 5 was the reparation offering. When someone becomes aware that they've been guilty of sinning against the Lord's holy things, and the holy things are sacred space or time or words that have been dedicated to the Lord, then that person needs to repent. And repentance was like the key that kind of unlocks the idea of it being unintentional. In intentional sin, God would treat as unintentional if there's repentance. And we saw there even how God has designed even private property as something that he's designated as important. And so when we violate someone's property, repentance is needed. And that then brings an end to the sanctuary laws regarding sacrifices and now begins the laws regarding priests and the instructions for priests. So chapter 6 and 7, we had a list of instructions for the priests, how they're supposed to carry out each sacrifice, And the one note that I want to draw out from this section was this. We noted that the fire of sacrifice was to be a perpetual fire. It constantly was burning. There was always another sacrifice to be made. That's going to come into play. This particular fire is going to come into play in chapter 10, what we look at today. But this points us forward, of course, to the sacrifice of Jesus, because Jesus' sacrifice put an end to all other sacrifices. No longer do the priests need to stand and make sacrifices day after day after day. The fires have been put out, so to speak, by the sacrifice of Christ. And then chapters 8 and 9, we saw the tabernacle was dedicated and worship began. The priests were ordained. We saw that the Lord desires fellowship with his people. He provides the mediator. And then chapter 9, and this is important because this will set us up for what we see today. The worship begins in the tabernacle. So chapter 9 Now the tabernacle is beginning to function as God has designed it. Atonement is made. And Moses and Aaron enter the tabernacle. And the Lord comes out in glory to meet with the people. The sacrifices are consumed as fire comes from the Lord and consumes them. And the glory of the Lord that previously only Moses was able to see up on the mountain now is seen by the entire people. And the people respond at the end of chapter 9 with reverence and awe in worship. Now remember, all of this that takes place in chapter 9 with the beginning of the tabernacle and the atonement sacrifice being made takes place on the same day and the The high note at the end of chapter 9 where God meets his people and comes out in glory and consumes the sacrifice and they're worshiping in reverence and awe, that takes a quick turn for the worse in chapter 10. Chapter 10 takes place on the same day. So if you have your Bible and you're there in Leviticus chapter 10, we're going to pick up at the beginning of this chapter. And you see we've called this strange fire, and you'll see why very quickly. Leviticus chapter 10, let me start by reading uh, verses, um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, just to give us the context here. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. That says 1 through 2, but I'm going to read through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. What is this strange fire or unauthorized fire? There's a lot of different suggestions that people have made. We don't get a lot of details here. Some think that it was coals from their own fires, from their own tent at home. Some think that it was that they used their own sensors, the the pans that they would carry the coals in, rather than the ones that were dedicated to be used in the tabernacle. Some people think they were borrowing some sort of ceremony from pagan worship, maybe something they had learned in Egypt. But according to the text, I think the most likely thing is that the origin of their problem is that they're under the influence of alcohol. You'll see that as we keep going. And... Maybe they grabbed coals from the wrong fire or from their own fire at home instead and brought those in. In some manner, whatever the case is, they innovated or altered the instructions that God had given. Notice that it said there in The end of verse 1, which he had not commanded them. If you go back and look in chapters 8 and 9, you'll see like 10 times where it said, and they did this as the Lord commanded them. And they did this as the Lord commanded them. But here, they do that which he had not commanded them. The word strange or unauthorized fire, that word means an outsider or a foreigner so it's something outside of what God had given as his instructions. Now, let's pause and kind of get the big picture of what's going on here in this scene. There is, we've already pointed out a number of these kind of Oreo sandwich structures, these chiastic structures, you know, where it's like the same, same thing here and here, but then something different in the middle. There's a structure like that going on in this story that I want to point out because I, I think the author is doing this on purpose. And here's what it is. If you went back into chapter 9, verse 23, you would see God's presence and glory. Then verse 24, fire. Then chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, fire. And then verse 3, God's presence and glory. Okay, so you see the structure. Let me read the verses so that you see it. So, look with me starting at chapter 9, verse 23. And remember, chapter 9 is when everything's great. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. The tabernacle worship has just begun, everybody's doing everything as the Lord commanded, and the response is wonderful. Chapter 9, verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. So, there they are in the presence of the Lord. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So we have presence and glory. Verse 24, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So the Lord's fire comes out and consumes the offering. Remember, what is the point of the offering? That offering is there in the place of the sinner. The sinner deserves to be consumed. But instead the sacrifice is consumed by God's fire of wrath. And then chapter 10 verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, God's presence, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. God's glory. God will be glorified one way or another. At the end of chapter 9, The sacrifice is consumed in the place of the sinner. And God is glorified. In chapter 10, the sinners are consumed by fire. And God is glorified. When God rescues you and gives you an eternity in his presence, seeing his glory, He does that because his wrath fell on the sacrifice of Jesus. And when God sends a sinner to hell for eternity, God is glorified by that as well. God will be glorified. One way or another and so off the high note at the end of chapter 9 now immediately in these first three verses we have tensions that are introduced into the story and two questions come up now that we have to answer as the story goes on and the first question is how do we approach God's presence And the second one is, how do we deal with the defilement of dead bodies now in the tabernacle? And as the story unfolds, these questions will be answered. Let me just kind of give you the preview of what that looks like. In Leviticus 9, like we just said, we have the pristine, brand new tabernacle. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. There's fellowship in God's presence. Then in chapter 10, sin defiles and separates. Now remember where this is headed. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. Turn in your Bible, a couple pages over to Leviticus 16. I want to show you something. Leviticus chapter 16. Look with me just at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died. The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 is the same day. The the instructions for the Day of Atonement come on the same day as Leviticus 9 and Leviticus 10. The instructions for the Day of Atonement come in the immediate context of what Nadab and Abihu did. The Day of Atonement comes as a response to that. It's an answer to the questions that are raised by what God has done in response to their sin. Now, the Day of Atonement is much bigger than that. It points us forward to Jesus. It's the center of the whole Pentateuch. But in its immediate context, the Day of Atonement comes because of Nadab and Abihu, and what we just read in Leviticus 10. So then, what happens in between chapter 10 and chapter 16? Well, it's regulations about clean and unclean. In other words, how can you come into God's presence, and what do you have to do to deal with the uncleanness of sin? Because we now have uncleanness to deal with. We've got dead bodies in the tabernacle. We've got sin in the tabernacle, and it's got to be dealt with. Before we move on from those verses, let me just point out, do you see the shape here? Creation, fall, redemption. This is the storyline of scripture. Everything's just right the way it's supposed to be. There's fellowship in God's presence. And then sin interrupts it and separates man from God. And then God does something to restore man to himself. That's the storyline of Scripture. And you're seeing it in miniature here in what happens in Leviticus. The rest of the chapter I'm going to walk through very quickly. So pick it up with me in verse 4, the response of Aaron and the priest. Well, let me just go back. At the very end of verse 3, Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. By the way, those are signs of mourning. If you let your hair hang loose and if you tear your clothes, those are signs of mourning. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. So they're told, you may not mourn for Nadab and Abihu. Why? Well, because first of all, they've been anointed and they're in the middle of serving the Lord. And to mourn what the Lord had done would give the appearance of disagreeing with God's judgment and possibly inviting sympathy for Nadab and Abihu. And that cannot be. People need to see this sin for what it is. And so they're told, you may not mourn. Leave that to the rest of the congregation. You may not mourn. But what we see there is that duty to God takes priority over personal matters. As the story continues then, verses 8 through 11, we get this instruction regarding alcohol. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons, with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord had spoken to them by Moses. So no wine or strong drink when you're on duty, when you're going into the tent. Why? Because your job is to distinguish and teach. And you need to have a clear mind to do that. Now, the instruction is not, don't ever drink. Okay? If God wanted to give that instruction, he could have. He only said, the Levites, and only when you go into the tent of meeting, or the priests, and when you go into the tent of meeting. He didn't outlaw it for other times, and he didn't outlaw it for the rest of the people. Some people also want to say, well, this was watered down, they cut it with water, et cetera, et cetera." Well, that may or may not be true, but the point is they weren't to be under the influence and whatever it was that they could have been drinking would have brought them under the influence. So God says, don't do that. This is also why I think it's likely that this is what Nadab and Abihu did. Otherwise, it's an odd instruction for God to insert at this point. So I think they probably were under the influence of alcohol and chose to do something different than what God commanded. And so it becomes an example that to have right thinking, clear thinking, when you are in the middle of serving as priests, you're not to be drinking. It's very similar to what we read in Proverbs 31, the instruction for kings when they sit on the throne, they're not to be under the influence of alcohol because the pronouncements that they make as king need to have clear thinking and right judgment behind them. The next section then, verses 12 through 15, the priests are are to um, carry out their duties as commanded, particularly eating the sacrifice. So take a look at 12 through 15. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons, take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and as your sons do from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded So we have these instructions of what the priests are supposed to eat and where they're supposed to eat it. Two things to note. Number one, the needs of the priests are provided for through the service of what they're doing. So the offerings are made to God, but God uses those offerings then to provide for the priests as they serve. The second thing is this. Where are they supposed to eat it? They're supposed to eat, the text says several times, in a clean place. Let me ask you. Is the tabernacle, at this point in the story, a clean place? I don't think it is. Because you've just had two priests sin and die. And as the book goes on, we'll see that dead bodies defile. And so this tabernacle is not a clean place. Which then leads to the last section, the question of Aaron's obedience, verses 16 through 20. Now, Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. Now, in Moses' mind, I'm just explaining, side note, this is a problem because it wasn't supposed to be completely burned up. Some of it was supposed to be used for food for the priests. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. He's talking about the death of Nadab and Abihu there. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. I believe that what happens there is that Aaron and Eliezer and Ithamar don't eat. Because they recognize the place has been defiled. And they're supposed to eat in a clean place. And because of the sins of the priests, there's no clean place for them to eat. And so they forego eating. And they consume the whole sacrifice. It's burned up instead. And once the explanation is given to Moses, Moses approves of that. Now. As we consider that story, chapter 10, three conclusions I want to draw for you this morning. Number one, God must be approached as he commands. For us today, what we know, now living on the other side of the cross, is that the gospel is the only way of salvation, Jesus is the only way of salvation. It's the only way for us to approach God. So Paul writes in Galatians chapter one, verses eight and nine, to the Galatians, he says, "But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed." As we've said before, so now I say again: If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says there's one way. And if anyone Suggests anything else, it's wrong. We must approach God as He commands. You and I live in a world that increasingly does not accept that truth. We need to see it in Scripture and believe it in our hearts. And there are people in this world that need to know it. Second conclusion. God must be worshipped as he commands. There are boundaries to what we do in terms of innovating in the church. Can we do some things online? Yes, we can. Can we do some, we we sing some songs and we use instruments that they didn't have back then? Yes, we can do some of those things. But at the end of the day, what we do when we gather as the church is what God has commanded. Why do we open his word? Because that's what he said to do. Why do we read it together? Because that's what he said to do. Why do we preach from his word? That's what he said to do. Why do we sing together? That's what he said to do. Why do we give? That's what he said to do. We worship God as he commands. When I was younger, just kind of thinking through the ways the church innovated, I remember reading about a church out in California. Figures it would be California that decided to kind of update the Lord's Supper to make it uh, more understandable for a younger generation. And so they replaced the bread and the wine with potato chips and Coke. We don't go there, right? We don't innovate. We don't introduce things that, that God says, no, I've told you to do this. We want to be obedient to God's word. And finally God's word must be highly regarded. What makes the difference in this story between Nadab and Abihu on the one hand and Eleazar and Ithamar and Aaron on the other? They both disregarded part of the instructions that were given to them from God. So what makes the difference? Nadab and Abihu deviated out of a disregard for God's word. Eliezer and Ithamar deviated out of a high regard for God's word. They said, yes, the instruction is for us to eat. But this is a place of sin. It's not a clean place. We can't go ahead with this until the situation is dealt with. And so their deviation from God's instructions was out of a high regard for His Word. So, how do you regard God's Word? In a world of propaganda and lies, God's truth is essential. When you're trying to determine what is the truth, this is it. This is the truth. You want to know the standard for how you should operate as a family? This is it. You want to know the standard for how we should operate as a church? This is it. You want to know the standard for what you should expect from government and society? This is it. This is the standard. This is the plumb line against which we measure. When you hear the message of how it is that you can come into God's presence and what takes care of sin, measure it against this. God must be approached as he commands. God must be worshipped as he commands. And God's word must be highly regarded. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we think of this story of Nadab and Abihu this morning, it's a scary story. It should draw us up short to say, Wow, do I understand holiness and sin as this dire of a situation? You've provided the mediator for us. You've provided the atonement sacrifice for us. They are one and the same. They are your son, Jesus. We can now come into your presence because of him. That should bring us great confidence and joy. We don't need to worry coming into your presence. We don't need to clean ourselves up as if that's what our survival depends on. No, you've given us your word that when you look at us, you see Jesus. And by faith, we count on that. And that's what gives us peace with you. And yet at the same time, we want to be people who as your, as your creatures and your subjects and your children, we recognize who you are. We recognize your holiness and we don't come lightly into your presence as if it doesn't matter how we come, but we want to come as holy people. We want to come as people who have a, a heartfelt desire to please you, to walk with you. We want to be in your presence and see your glory. We don't deserve it, but you've given us your Son who ushers us into your presence. And it's in his name that we thank you this morning, that we praise you and that we worship you. Amen.